Hey there, product lovers. Welcome to the Product Love Podcast, hosted by Eric Bodick, co-founder and chief evangelist of Pendo and super fan of all things product. Product Love is the place for real insights into the world of crafting products as Eric interviews founders, product leaders, venture capitalists, authors, and more. So let's dive in now with today's Product Love podcast. Well, welcome lovers of product. Today I'm here with Prince Khalid, the CTO of Automation Anywhere. Nice to have you here, Prince. Thanks, Eric. It's a pleasure. Well, why don't you kick off the podcast by giving us a, a quick overview of your background? Uh, sure. So again, my name is Prince Kohli. I grew up, I was born and grew up in India in a lower middle class family in Delhi. And somehow, somehow I decided I would go into engineering. I decided to, I picked computer science. I guess I was lucky to do that. Loved it so much. Did I not only did I finish my bachelor's from IIT Delhi, I came to the States to finish my PhD in computer science. And then since then, I've been in the Valley, Silicon Valley for close to a quarter century. Worked in all sizes and shapes of companies, even co-founding my own company, Silicon Graphics, Citrix, Ericsson, a lot of cloud infrastructure companies, enterprise application company, cloud software, telecom. In the last few years, uh, big data and AI. And interestingly enough, having gone through these various companies and types of applications, finally, I found that, and we'll talk about that later, I'm sure, I found that one of the threads that was most important to me was how do you make uh, work better, right, for for employees, for people, and that's what helped me land up at Automation Anywhere. Yeah, so take me through some of your early background. Talk to me about how you got into product management, and then we'll probably touch on how product management's changed over the years. But but talk to me about your early background and getting involved in product management, especially as a as an engineering background. So uh, as an engineer, you always know how to build things. You enjoy building things. You enjoy problem solving. And in my experience, it's only the nature of problems that changes with with time. So you start with smaller problems, then you start solving slightly larger problems. And at some point, the problems become so large that you can't solve them alone. So you say, I need a team. I can't do it alone. Then you become an architect or a manager. Then you go up the ranks uh, as you are able to solve problems, which are not just the scope of the problem, it is the time horizon of the problem. Because then you're solving problems that are a year out and sometimes two years out. And it was in that context that I found that engineering and product management are really just two sides of the same coin. I found, at least my experience was, that to be a good engineer or engineering manager, you have to be a really good product manager. And to be a really good product manager, you have to have built things yourself. Uh, there are exceptions always, but in general, I found that someone who shifts from one to the other and back and forth a few times does a really good job on either and on both. And that's what I did. I started as an engineer, went up the ranks on management side, switched to product management, switched back to engineering, switched to product management, and now I do both. And because I can feel the I'm empathetic to both sides, I find that I'm able to do a better job. And I and you know I I love doing both together. So uh, that is how I really in product management I just found that I could solve problems for a longer horizon and also just larger scope in the short term as well. Yeah. So now talk to me through some of your experiences. What did you learn for as far as the craft from say Ericsson or Citrix or you know the the startup you sold to Citrix? It's, it's so interesting, right? There are small companies, there are large companies, medium-sized companies, and often people think of them as very different. 
Uh, and there are some things that clearly are different. There are processes that work at a different scale. But some parts are always the same, which is you have to understand your customer. Who is your customer? Why should they care about your product? What is the value proposition? And whether it is Ericsson, where I had uh, you know more than 10,000 people in my team, and whether it is a company called Terros, where I had, uh, you know, we had a total team was 45. That part does not change. And the experiences over there are more about how many customers, how many countries, the size of the opportunity. But otherwise, the similarities abound in large and small companies. Ericsson was, of course, special. It's just, it's a company with a client, a customer in every country in the world. So you get, uh, when you build clouds in that company, you get to see data from everywhere, anonymized data, of course, but you get to see trends of what people do with phones and smart, you know, smartphone data, et cetera. So you get huge amount of data using which you can create beautiful AI engines to predict things. And those things are the same, whether in then even in other enterprises as well, you can start seeing the value of data. And that's how you end up, that's how at least I ended up in the AI space and RPA, where you can now look at enterprise data and from there, be able to predict what people do. Yeah, so tell me more of the Automation Anywhere story. Talk to me about the problems you're solving today at Automation Anywhere. So at the highest level, the way I would look at this is, so we are in a space called RPA, Robotic Process Automation. What that is about is understanding human behavior in an enterprise. It is usually said that between 70 to 85 or 90% of work in an enterprise is repetitive. It might be hard, it might be complex, but it is not always creative. So if you are able to then, using software and AI, you are able to understand what people are doing, what the intent is, and then you're able to automatically automate it, meaning they are not having to write a program, but you are, that you can, just by observation, your software can observe and write the program and help them augment themselves. So it doesn't... The human is always involved, but the human controls the bot, as we call it. That makes their work much more creative, much more rewarding. And to the enterprise itself, it is they have employees who are obviously happier, but also from their perspective, they have things they can scale, they can do things faster, better, in a more error-free way, whether it is industrial automation, whether it is finance and HR, whether it is you know high tech, whatever it may be, you can go across the board and look at how uh, in intelligent automation can help a company. I'll give you an interesting example from uh, one of our customers in the oil and natural gas space. His view was that they are sending people on an oil platform to do something very risky, to look at certain levers and data, and to, based on what they see, take some action. He doesn't want to do that. He would rather have software that can observe it decide what to do based on guidance from humans that they can put in an AI model, and then right when it is needed, take action. That saves human lives, reduces risk to them, reduces cost to them, and works obviously better. So that is really what we sell. Awesome. Thanks. So, you know, part of Automation Anywhere, you were kind of, you were leading force or kind of a, you were early to the market, right? When you think about it from the standpoint, RPA was in essence, defined by you or, or maybe some of your early competitors. Uh, so you were right there in the beginning. And then you had another company, I believe it was Teros, that got bought by Citrix, right? So both those companies, you're really early on and you're figuring out this product market fit. Talk to me about that process. Like, What's it like building products for an emerging 
industry like RPA or like the work you did at Teros in? How did you go about establishing product market fit? Uh, that's a, probably the most fun part of the job. I think the thing that you have to remember is that there is a problem that you have to spot. And the problem has to be significant either now or in the future. So at Teros, we spotted a problem that was just beginning. It was essentially application firewall, security at the application layer for websites. And we knew this was going to become a must-have for every enterprise moving to the web. And there were clouds would start to get formed, like Amazon and Apple and so on. And they would all need to protect against application-level attacks. So we saw that happening. And you know, as the saying goes, you have to go where the puck is going to be, not where it is now. So we spotted it, we put money on it, we put our own time on it, our investors put money on it, and turned out that we were exactly on mark. Now, of course, it is really impossible to be to know exactly where the puck is going to be. You have to be in the right space, roughly. So you have to create things that will get you there and be very flexible on the way. We, you change directions sometimes, uh, you know, every month or so, you change it, take a little bit of a curve, you know, left, a little bit of a left, a little bit of a right, but you keep, uh, you know what market you are in and why. And then based on customer feedback, early customer feedback, based on your own experience, based on talking to other cutting edge customers who will talk to you and say, this is a problem I'm trying to solve. This is what I run into. You shift all the time and you run experiments, right? You know, you're in a small company. You are allowed to have some failures. You better be comfortable with that. You try some things, get out of it quickly, fail fast, but learn and then move on. And now in the RPA space, what has happened is we have the opportunity to create that market. And it is also hard because you there is a lot of people who rely on you. There are thousands of people in your companies and tens of thousands of customers who rely on you to make sure that your guesses right, are well are educated. But again, in turn, they help you as well. They deploy your software, you get data from them, you understand what problems they are solving now and what would they like to solve in the future. And really, you develop a feel for the thing. But all the time, you have to test the feel in the market. That's really how you find product market fit. But risk-taking is key. <laughs> Never be afraid of making a call, even if maybe it is wrong. Yeah, and learning from that. Now, it's interesting with RPA and the work you're doing now, where it's kind of like technology that's augmenting humans, right? It, it's very, yeah. I don't want to say if human-centric design is the right word, but it's about augmentation of, of the existing human processes and, and automating and, and removing kind of the, the need for humans to do repetitive processes, right? Yes. Do you see that as a big trend in the industry in general, like across all of industries? I have a perspective. If I am a millennial or someone, you know, in one of the later generations, they have been working with computers since they were born, right? And now the current generation was is an iPhone generation. They, iPhones have been around when, you know, the current 16, 17-year-olds, they were decided to pick the first devices up. For them, anything that can be done by a device or by a software should never be done by people. It makes no sense. And we are seeing that the as the next set of people who are joining our companies, their bar is higher. They do not wish to do things that a couple of generations ago people would consider as part of their day-to-day jobs. So that is one thing that we are observing across the board, across the world as a matter of fact, right? And in every company uh, everywhere. Second is that the kind of work has also changed. The digitalization of companies is a must. People are competing with retail companies, are competing with Amazon. Entertainment is competing with Netflix. Uh, For companies that are born in the cloud, like Amazon and Netflix, to compete with them 
everyone has to start thinking digital first. And how do you do that? You have to start taking what you were doing in an analog way with paper and with a kind of slower processes. And you have to reinterpret that and use some technology so that you are able to understand things digitally and then able to analyze them digitally. People know their business very well. What you have to provide them is a tool and the platform to be able to digitize their own businesses. And in the end, if I had to really simplify it, that is what RPA is. RPA allows you to use whatever you were doing and create a highly performant, flexible way to access all that data and take actions on it and allow people to augment themselves with intelligent bots and then compete with whoever they want to compete to or take or have a leg up on their other competitors. So now you've been a product veteran. You've been in the industry for over two decades. We're in the middle of a global pandemic. How has that affected how you manage product teams and your product? So uh, the pandemic changes things for everyone. It is for us also, what has happened is that for the first couple of months, every company was trying to first figure out how long it's going to last. But there was uh, every, each of our customers, I mean. But there were some for whom it was an immediate impact. I'll, there are some of the world's largest airlines are our customers. And for them, close to day one, their phones were ringing off the hook. People were calling to either cancel, reschedule, ask for reimbursement, whatever it may be. So they started using RPA. They had no choice. They started using RPA to automate the process of certificate issue, cancellation, reissue, whatever it may be. And suddenly their capacity to handle their customer load went up by 10x or 20x. That saved, in many of them, it just saved their reputations from, uh, they were customer-centric companies and they suddenly were had a load that they could not have dealt with otherwise. Other companies, there are some large companies that work in the lodging industry. For them as well, the nature of their work had changed. And they also realize that using RPA at these times allows them to be much more flexible and allow them to take faster decisions. Now, there, that is what has happened to the two other companies and our customers. For us, the work-life balance is just completely shifted. Obviously, everyone works from home. I used to have a, a, a semi-joke. I had three R&D offices before the pandemic. After the pandemic, I have 90 because all my people have shifted. They have gone to their you know, near their parents or just taken a year off and gone to the Midwest and said, I'm going to work from here for a year. And we are very happy to support it uh, because, you know, they don't need to be here. And as long as they are being productive and feel and use that as an opportunity to travel or get away from stress, it works for us as well. We have found that managing them has not changed that much in nature. As long as you are able to allow them to have the dog in the picture, <laughs> have a dog in, on Zoom, have kids, so many of our people are young enough to have kids who are very young. And often the kid will come and join a call and listen in. And suddenly that is okay. It never used to be okay. And now that is okay. Shorts are okay. T-shirts are okay. People see other people's families. That's okay too. People get to know their uh, other people better. Yeah, so many, things are, yeah, many things are very good about it. Maybe it's even better that we get to know people and see people's families more and get to see them interacting, you know, and, and it creates a stronger sense of empathy, not just with our employees, but with our, our customers too, right? Yeah, don't you think so? I, I That's what we felt too. I think yeah, I think first couple of months, everyone was taken by surprise. I mean, what do we do about this? But people are finding happiness now, right? They're resilient and customers. I mean, you know, you, you talk to someone and you can see not just their 
home office. You can see the couch and the TV, and uh, you know, for one of them, I can see all the toys. So then you know much more about the person and the connection it creates is a human connection, right? It is not just a work connection. It's been quite enlightening. And the questions you ask about, you know, how well are you? How well are your families? And then how are your kids doing? And your grandparents? This creates a bond. I think that was that was probably not as strong earlier. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. Do you have any specific advice for other product leaders that maybe are struggling with this? I mean, this move, like you said, going from three to ninety as far as remote employees or remote engineers. But general advice for product leaders that maybe are struggling a little bit more than you guys did. I, you know, I, I'll tell you my experience. In my experience, first one is don't be picky. Right. Allow people to choose their own times. Allow them understand that they may have mornings that are busier sometimes because of kids or other things. Sometimes evening times may work. Sometimes it won't. Be as flexible as you can, and you will actually get your employees to be to to respond in ways that you will feel very happy about. I have found that at least in all our employees in our company, while everyone is there is always a you know a lot more stress than before, but productivity has actually increased uh, not because we have been trying to get it to increase we were actually you know we expected productivity to drop for obvious reasons but you find that people are putting in the hours because they also want a connection with the rest of the world right so allow that to happen would be my advice and the second advice i would have is know that your customers are in the same boat as well be very empathetic to them know that your customers would are having a very hard time do whatever it is you can to help them and that will build, build long term customer relationships not just short term yeah I, i like that i i think it is important that we think about what everyone is going through and in trying to be both empathetic and helpful knowing that they might be going through things that we're not i think does strengthen those bonds both with employees and customers yeah yeah you see people as people right and that makes all the difference Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and customers want to have a relationship with other people, not with not with the company. Yeah, uh, that, that is correct. The company relationship is very transactional, and the people relationship is not transactional. It's actually a relation, right? You like someone, you will give them much more time to, if there is a problem, to fix things or to make things better. So. Yeah, I would agree with that. So, talk to me about how things may have changed on the roadmap side or on the metrics. Did you guys find your roadmap or metrics being adjusted based on the pandemic? Actually, we did. Uh, we found that since most of our customers, if not all of them, had moved off campus, moved to their home or somewhere else, we one thing that we had been building turned out to be a major advantage. And I'll actually two things. I'll talk about them in order. First was that we had made a major transition to being a cloud-enabled, cloud-focused, cloud-native software. From earlier, we were just on-prem, and then a year and a half ago, we moved to being on cloud and on-prem. And because of the pandemic. the interest of our customers in cloud was an order or two orders of magnitude higher because you know suddenly they were not on premises they were not at their work to use our software they want to use all software which was remotely fully featured easily used by our browsers as opposed to having to do security policies etc and upgrades and downgrades via monolithic clients so having a browser native cloud native client really helped us and we were we knew that was always right but because of the pandemic it just said the payback on that the positive payback on that came much earlier the second thing is we have also found that in the pandemic people are working from all sorts of places 
and you have to make their experience with the product very very natural so our our focus on ux how people interact with the product uh, has actually gone another has evolved even more to you know kind of iphone like experience yes it has a lot of ai in there there is a lot of data in there lot of moving parts but to the customer it should be so simple that while the rest of their life is very complicated our software should seem very intuitive so that should be one of the things that define comfort in as opposed to being scared by it and that is not something you think about in a pandemic uh, that that will be a learning way turn out to be a learning for us so let's talk about hiring for a little bit i mean you've built product teams and engineering teams at a number of different companies now i'm sure acquired some great nuggets of wisdom in doing so so talk to me about building teams especially at companies like automation anywhere that are are growing really really quickly right so um a lot of tricks <laughs> a lot of tips and tricks so one is uh, we tend to hire from everywhere where there are good people so we tend for example when we are hiring from colleges we don't just go to the top 5 or 10 named colleges we go to the 50 or 80 and we go to every state almost in the us or wherever else where offices are we tend to get a large diversity of people in all sorts of diversity right uh, how people think how people look that one uh, we find that if you are able to get a very large so called pipeline of people who come from very diverse backgrounds it creates a high quality team a fun team and if you create a team like that people call their friends and family and then they join you as well so that one really helps then the second thing that helps is people join you because either there is someone in the team that they look up to they say i want to work for or with that person or they believe in your mission and we found that uh, so we try to do that as well we of course have many strong people and they tend to pull people from the network because people like to work for people they believe in but because our mission is to make work easier and more human we find we get a lot of people who believe in the same mission and they come to our company because they too want to get people's lives easier they want to make sure there is access to technology for everyone they want to make sure that companies across the world are able to use software in a way that does not increase inequality but reduce inequality so because uh, people believe in the mission we find that we are able to hire just some of the very best people more easily than otherwise yeah i think that's interesting uh this whole mission based hiring and having a strong mission making hiring a lot more effective right yeah yeah it also it creates you know an interview right there is in an interview it also creates this agreement between the interviewer and the interviewee on what matters what is important and if you start from a point of agreement or strong agreement then other things can get solved right but if they start from a point of it is i am going to work for you because you'll give me this much money that's not going to last right you know everyone can give you money and close enough money but you really have to believe and like what you do and then of course you have to like the people and the team if you get that together everything else takes care of itself yeah i imagine putting those three things together like liking the purpose behind the company liking the people you work with and obviously you know being happy with your compensation if you're able to get those three things i i imagine that makes employee turnover minimized uh, absolutely absolutely i mean are able to you know i would say that i was going to say people are always going to be people love working but i have been careful about saying that with pandemic i, th- I think right now people sometimes don't have a choice but work <laughs> so <laughs> but, but i think what i am actually is to make a little bit of a sidebar here we used to have people say i want to work more from home pre pandemic 
And post pandemic, I have people coming up to me all the time and saying, "Can I go back to work as soon as possible? Because I just want to see other people. I, I love working with other people, but not just on Zoom. I want to see them. I want to feel them. I want to give them a hug. I think it's going to be another year before we do that. But yes, <laughs> having those three things work together does make life easy for us. You, you think it'll be another year? Yeah, it's just you know, the vaccine comes. Let's say end of the year, then it goes to the people who are most Acceptable first, and then by the time that happens, another six months. So to me, you know, nine to thirteen months is my guess. Next summer is my guess. Interesting. Yeah, we have uh, at Pendo, we have uh, a few of our offices open uh, that you can go in if you'd like to, because there's mm-hmm. there's some people that really like having the process of going into an office. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> there's definitely people that are a lot more productive and a lot less cranky and a lot happier <laughs> going into an office. And, you know, it has all kinds of situations. There might be lots of kids at home, whatever it happens. Uh, I know, uh, I know. So we do have a few that go in. It's a rather small number as a percentage now. I mean, it's probably single digits. But, uh, yeah, it, it's good to give people that option at least, right? Yes, and I think that's uh, it's for the next few years, right? Two to three years. I think it is going to be all about options. I think while some industries have to be kind of hands-on, but uh, I would say close to all, especially in technology. I think uh, next two to three years, people will only be optionally in office. I highly doubt that people will be given an ultimatum saying you have to be in the office for at least uh, at least till 2023. Is my guess. Well, at least that long, huh? Right. I think, uh, and I think it's going to be okay. Most people who want to, who really want to come to work, we should give them the option to, to do so. But forcing them to come to work, I think will take another two to three years, if that. No, as you know, you know, there are some companies who have moved completely saying, yeah, uh, no, I mean, you, know, you definitely yeah. see a trend to, you know, a hybrid environment sometime in the office, you know, yeah. maybe sometime yeah. remote indefinitely. Yeah. I mean, forever, potentially. I mean, That's I think the, the future of work and where it is, has definitely been impacted. And I think it's naive to think that we're not going to see changes. Yeah, there you go. I, I, I think it's naive to think there won't be changes. It's also a huge experiment that has been run, even though we didn't want to run it. And we have learned a lot about what works and what doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Everyone has learned about themselves and about their teams and employees. And I think uh, you don't want to let that data go to waste. Yeah, and, and like you said too, you've seen people, and I have too, some people, some groups are more productive in this environment. So why would we force something else on them? That's right. And people have phases in their life, right? Sometimes they would like to come to work for months or years. And sometimes for whatever reason, they say, can I work not from the office or maybe do much more hybrid than otherwise for a year? Um, And why would you not allow them, right? You know, they are good people. They're committed to you. If they are doing what they need to do, allow them the space to do what works for them as well. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the future since we are going down that direction. What what are your predictions for tech and product, you know, next year? What do you think, you know, product managers will be keeping an eye on? How is the, you know, the overall tech field and product management going to change? I it's one thing that people, everyone will have to understand and incorporate in their planning every PM is the impact of events like COVID. I think every customer is now asking about it. They're saying, what do I do with your product if things like this happen? Or how will your product help me solve it? Or how do I solve the problems I'm having today with something new that you can offer me? And that is one that everyone has to, a question that everyone will have to think about. It is not the question we get asked all the time, but if they have an answer to that, it will help. Second is, 
I would also say that every company, wherever possible, should start looking both in their own IT and seeing if they're on the cloud. And if they are a vendor, then start looking at how to get their own software on the cloud. I, I think that was already a trend, but that trend is going to accelerate massively. There is just no other choice at this point. And then finally, from the PM perspective, I would say that the focus on top line, on making sure that there are the ability for sales and marketing to be effective when their customers are going through uh, such a unique event, uh, that ability has become very, very important, far more important than before because the previous templates have all broken down. There are no playbooks like they used to exist on this is how you do sales, this is how you do marketing. During the pandemic and for the next many years, new playbooks will have to be invented. And PMs who can think about it like uh, in those terms, I think will succeed more often than not, more often than others who don't. Yeah, I think that's great advice. So let's talk a little bit about Prince as we wrap up with a couple more questions today. Hmm. What's your favorite product? <laughs> what is my favorite product? Besides my own, you mean? <laughs> so yeah, I love my product. My, love, my product allows me to discover what I do and automate it. So I love my own product. Beyond that, I have to say that there are two kinds of products I like, and both are on opposite extremes. I love my iPhone. You know, I have to admit I love my iPhone, and not because I'm addicted to it, but because it lets me be free of a desk. I can be anywhere, and I can work on it. I can be productive on it. And I have found that because I'm an engineer, I've had many things about it. I put, you know, I, at some point I had a jailbroken iPhone. I, maybe I should not admit that, but I did. And the opposite of that is I, so I have two boys and I have to find ways to spend time with them. And for good or bad, they love poker. So I have found that I love poker as a product because it lets me spend time with my family. Uh, we <laughs> and 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 being Silicon Valley boys, one of them has written software to play poker uh, online. So we tend to <laughs> play poker online. <laughs> well, it's interesting because I've talked with a bunch of poker players. You know, the the ex CTO of Eventbrite was a professional poker player. As you've gotten into poker, has it changed how you think about product? Have you find yourself thinking more in bets, thinking differently, thinking about probability, maybe, and how it applies to your business? Not just the game of poker. What what a great question! You know there is a you know the sunk cost fallacy, right? And poker teaches yeah. you that not just the probabilities, as you mentioned, which is obviously critical, but also the sunk cost fallacy, right? You can't say I put in so much money, therefore I should put in more. You really have to say I have so much money uh, now in my hand. What do I? What is the best way to move forward? It is not about yeah. What's uh, the you know, what, yeah, that's right. What is the best bet to make with what you have? Uh, because usually, you know, the beginner always says, I've already put in, you know, $40, whatever it may be, right? I can always put five more. Uh, no, that's not the right answer, right? It is now I have 20 in my hand. What do I do with the 20 is what is more important, not what you did with the previous 20. So, so yes, uh, good question. Yeah, so you, you think it has? Has is playing poker with your sons now impacted how you think about product? Has, has yeah, it uh, you know, it, I, I don't think that you have an option, right? Because See, you don't you don't segment yourself that way, right? You play poker, you have to think like that. And being an engineer by training, I tend to get analytical anyway. So whatever you learn in one goes and affects things on the other side. Probabilities all the time, and pulling out <laughs> when you think you're going to, you know, the probabilities of winning are low. Pulling out soon, right? Don't don't lose more money. Uh, I think is very important. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think there's a lot of learnings from playing poker that can be applied to technology, and especially technology uh, product leaders. So. Survive to play the next hand. 
Yes, yes. <laughs> you're only out of the game when you're out of money. Uh, so final question today, three words to describe yourself. Huh. Three words to describe myself. Okay, let me see. I would say that I am inquisitive. I like questioning things. I like understanding. I don't take other people's views as gospel. I tend to inquire. Second, I am optimistic. I tend to see the glass always half full or can be full. With the right things, any glass can be made full. So I tend to think like that. I think building products teaches you that anyway. And thirdly, I would like to think that I'm empathetic. I, I listen to people. I try very hard to look at their perspective, not mine. Look at what they are telling me. And from their point of view, uh, what, what makes sense? I find these are, uh, you know, I, I am a happier person when I put these things in play. Uh, let me just put it that way. Yeah, and, and empathy, it's something I hear over and over again from product leaders. I mean, more than some of the hard skills you know, we talked about before that can be advantageous, especially if you're in a deep technology company, you know, having that engineering background. But more than anything else, I, I hear empathy as being very important for, you know, product leaders, both in building their own teams and how they work with customers. Uh, and you can, uh, you can intuitively expect that as well, right? Because while at the beginning there is vision, right? At that point, the empathy is there, but for a future customer, not a current customer. But at some point, it also has to be for the current customer, meaning you have a lot of customers. How do you make their life better? Because in turn, they will give you the advice you need to expand the product, make a bigger impact, make a bigger footprint. And empathy is not for some for you to explain to the other person why they should be empathetic to you. Empathy is really about being in their box, right? Step yeah. outside your box, be be in their box, look at you know what colors they see and what walls they see. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, well, thank you, Prince. This was great. I enjoyed it. Yeah, me too, Eric. It was, very, it was wonderful to talk to you.